Bakersoft Story Classic, bringing to you recordings of old storybooks. The Thorn in the Nest, Episode 5 The Brannons fled immediately upon being released after the carrying out of the sentence. No one mourned their departure. But Nell Lamar, having heard from Dale of the look the culprit had cast upon Kenneth, rejoiced not a little in secret that they were gone. Dr. Clennanan had been so kind to her on her journey, she explained to herself that in common gratitude she must care for his safety. Naturally, being both friend and physician to the Major's family, Kenneth was a frequent visitor at their house. Though noticeably quiet and undemonstrative in, his, in manner, he soon became a great favorite with them all. From the parents down to the youngest child, and Nell saw no reason to appropriate his visits to herself, even when unprofessional. Nor had she any desire to do so, and in fact his conversation was seldom directed to her. Yet it did not escape Claire's quick observation that the calm gray eye saw every movement of her young sister, and that no tone of the sweet girlish voice ever fell unheeded upon his ear. She was well pleased. Nell could not help loving such a man, or being happy with him, so would soon be provided for, and the Major relieved of her support. The last would never have been the Major's thought. His darling little sister was esteemed no burden by him. He was one of the wealthiest men in the place, held a highly responsible office under the general government, and had received large grants of land in compensation for his services in the Revolutionary War. Nell was fond of her brother, yet stood somewhat in awe of him. He was a reserved, rather taciturn man, and military life had increased a natural tendency to sternness of manner toward those under his authority which bel belied his real kindness of heart. He had never a harsh word or look for Nell, yet she dared not lavish upon him the demonstrations of affection her loving young heart longed to bestow, dared not offer him a caress, and he rarely gave them unasked to her or to anyone else except the youngest of his children. Claire was more demonstrative and really meant to be very kind, but was as dictatorial and domineering in her way as the Major in his. And before many days had passed, she began to treat the young girl as a child, checking, criticizing, reproving, and directing with the most exasperating persistency, and as having an undoubted right. This was very trying to Nell's sense of womanly dignity, and though by no means an ill-tempered little body, she sometimes found it difficult to possess her soul in patience. "'Where now?' asked Claire one morning, dressing her. "'To the woods with the children after wildflowers and mosses,' returned the young girl gaily. She was standing in the doorway, swinging a broad-brimmed hat by its strings, her beautiful uncovered hair glittering like burnished gold in the sunbeams, sifting down upon it through the leaves of the overshadowing trees, as they stirred restlessly to and fro in the pleasant summer breeze. She was in a happy mood, light-hearted and free from care, as the birds warbling overhead, and had been humming snatches of song, till interrupted by Claire's question. "'You have been here nearly a week now,' pursued that lady, in precisely the tone she would have used to one of her children. "'Don't you think it is time to begin to make yourself useful? 
Life was never meant for a perpetual holiday. Nell's cheek crimsoned. What would you have me do? Offer my services as assistant to Sylvie the cook, Maria the nursemaid, or Tig the stable boy? She asked in a slightly sarcastic tone. Sylvie is an excellent cook, and it might not be at all amiss for you to take some lessons of her, said Claire. But there are other employments. The children need instruction, and you ought to be able to give it. Then there are spinning and sewing. I don't know anything about spinning. I'll teach you, in return for the lessons you give the children in spelling, reading, and writing. Very well. We'll talk of it when I come back from my walk, Nell answered, tying on her hat. She was willing enough to make herself useful, but Claire's manner was irritating. Her annoyance was, however, soon forgotten in the prattle of the children and the beauty of the woods. They wandered about till weary, then sat down on a log to rest. Now if I only had a book, remarked Nell. Why didn't you bring one? asked Bess. I don't mean a Sunday book, such as those on the shelves in the sitting room, was the half-scornful reply. Aunt Nell, there are some other kinds of books up in the garret. What kinds? Oh, I don't know. Stories, I believe. But not fit for me to read, Mother says. Nell rose eagerly. Come, let us go back, she said. I must see those books. But how came they th there? Bess explained as they wandered through their homeward way. She walked soberly by her aunt's side, the boys racing on before, climbing and jumping over stumps and logs. The major had formerly been in the mercantile business, and in the garret were stowed away boxes of goods, a medley of many odds and ends, which had fallen to his share in the division of unsold stock made by himself and partner in the winding up of the joint concern. The garret was the favorite resort of the children when kept within doors by stormy weather, and Bess had made herself well acquainted with the contents of the boxes, turning them over and over in search of pretty things with which to bedeck her dolls and herself. The books proved to be novels, Claremont, complete in several volumes, and an odd volume of Peregrine Pickle. Nell seized upon them with delight and carried them off to her bedroom. Books were rare luxuries in those days. There were no newspapers or magazines published in that region of country, and as yet there was no regular mail. Nell read and reread Claremont, devoting to its perusal every spare moment when she could steal away unobserved to the solitude of her room and carry in a volume with her in her rambles with the children. Then she took up Peregrine Pickle, but was sore disappointment that the first volume was missing, so much so that she at length plucked all up courage to ask her brother what had become of it, though quite fearful that he would disapprove of her reading it. Well, he said with a smile, I suppose my former partner has it, and somebody is probably as anxious for this as you are for it. I'm sorry for your sake that we were so careless in dividing our stock. It is just as well, said Claire. Time can be more profitably employed than in the reading of such trash. I consider it a very innocent amusement, replied the Major shortly, not over-pleased with the remark, seeing that it could call a flush of wounded feeling to Nellie's fair cheek. I remember that I enjoyed reading it myself. If it were in my power to get it for you, Nell, you should have it. She thanked him with a look, then rose and left the room. This is but a dull place for her after Philadelphia, he said to his wife. I have no doubt she misses the weekly newspaper and many other, another source of entertainment which she enjoyed there, but must do without here. 
Probably, but she is no worse off in regard to those things than any of the rest of us, said Claire coolly. You forget, my dear, that you have me, returned the Major with playful pleasantry, and the children, he added, taking his youngest on his knee, were worth a good deal, aren't we, Ralph? The Major so sincerely regretted his sister's disappointment that it was frequently in his thoughts during the next week, and he was seriously considering the feasibility of sending to Philadelphia or New York for a box of books such as she would find entertaining and instructive when the want was supplied in an unlooked for manner. Dr. Clennanan and his friend Dale had pushed forward their office building as fast as possible and taken possession. Making a call upon Kenneth one afternoon, the Major found him unpacking books and arranging them upon shelves he had had put up along the wall. Books, cried the Major. You have quite a library. All medical works? Oh, no, said Kenneth. Will you step up and look at them? My stock is not large, but valuable, to me at least, and I hope to add to it from time to time. Valuable, yes, indeed, to a lover of literature, remarked the Major, running his eye over the titles. Shakespeare, Milton, Pope, Dryden, Gray, Goldsmith, Gibbon, Plutarch, Rollins, etc., etc., poetry, history, fiction, are well represented, and I see you have a goodly supply of religious works of the best class also. Medical books, too, in plenty, but of their quality I am no judge. Yes, I shall not want for good companionship here in my somewhat rough bachelor quarters, Kenneth answered, surveying his treasures with an air of quiet content. But I do not mean to be selfish, Major. Make yourself at home among my friends. Thank you, returned the Major, heartily, wishing that Nell had been included in the invitation. When Kenneth, as if in answer to his thoughts, said, The ladies of your family, too, might find something here to enjoy. Then the Major told of Nell's disappointment, and half an hour later was on his way home, carrying her the vicar of Wakefield, and the assurance that Dr. Clennanan's entire library was at her service. Nell's face sparkled with delight at the news and the sight of the book. How kind in him, she said. I'll handle them with the greatest care. For many months those books and the talks with their owner, which naturally grew out of their perusal, were her greatest enjoyment, for as yet she had very few companions near her own age. But as the town grew, there was a corresponding increase in its young society and in the sources of amusement and entertainment open to her. She had many admirers, and Kenneth stepped quietly aside as one who had no desire to win the prize. Mrs. Lamar did not understand it. No more did Dale, or Nell herself, though Kenneth had never comported himself as a lover, and she had not consciously thought of him. There were other things about Kenneth that puzzled Dale. He seemed to have some secret grief. There were times when his look and manner betokened inexpressible sadness, though he always shook it off and assumed an air of cheerfulness on being spoken to. Dale's curiosity was piqued, and indeed he would have rejoiced to give all the sympathy and comfort that might be in his power. But there was a quiet, reserved dignity about Kenneth that forbade any intrusion into his private affairs. He rarely spoke of himself or his own concerns. He sometimes mentioned his mother or sister, always with the greatest respect and affection. But his talk, when they were alone together, was of literature, of the interests of the community in which they lived, the state, the country, the acts of the government, and what were going on in foreign lands, or of Dale's own plans and prospects. 
in which Kenneth took the most generous, unselfish interest. As a physician, he was untearing in his efforts to relieve, patient and sympathizing, in manner gentle even to tenderness with the aged and with the little ones. He soon came to have great influence in the community, and it was always cast on the side of right. A man of pure morals and an earnest Christian, he was as ready and competent to pray with the sick and dying, and to point out to the troubled soul the paths of peace as any minister could be. These offices were performed as simply and easily as those others in which the healing of the body only was concerned. Another thing Dale noticed, with the thought that it was decidedly odd, that Kenneth took evident pains to make acquaintance with all the Indians in the vicinity, and of every white man who had visited their tribes, whether near or far off, or had had much to do with them in any way, they, that he asked many questions, wording each with care to avoid arousing suspicion in regard to his motives, and that invariably his main object seemed to be to gain information in regard to whites living among the Indians. Once Dell ventured to ask if he had ever had a friend or relative carried off by them, but the answer was a quiet no, that while it left his curiosity entirely unsatisfied, gave no encouragement to further questioning. They were in Dale's office. Kenneth had come across the connecting hall with some inquiry in regard to a piece of land for the disposal of which Dale was the agent, and a casual mention of the Indians had made a favorable opening for his query. A moment's silence followed Kenneth's reply. Then Zeb came rushing in. Something going on down de to de river, saws. Square Smith going for to haul. Courts, de say, sent de constable to cotch the teeth and fotch him along double quick. Dell sprang from his chair and caught up his hat. My services may be needed, he said, laughing, though the square doesn't make much account of law. Come on, Doc, if the sentence should be flogging, you may be needed too. A man named Adam McMurdy, who cultivated some land on the station prairie below the town, had come in to Square Smith with a complaint that during his absence the previous night someone had stolen his horse collar, that he had examined the collars on the horses of the plowmen at work that this morning, recognized one of them as his, and claimed it of the horse's owner, Bill Slack, that Slack had not only refused to restore it, insisting that it was his own, but used very abusive language toward him. McMurdy, and threatened to whip him for accusing him of the theft. On hearing the story, the squire immediately dispatched his constable in search of Slack, with strict orders to bring him and the collar at once into court. The court had already convened under the trees by the riverside, and the constable was hurrying toward it, with the collar in one hand, the accused tightly grasped in the other, as Dr. Clendenin and Dale stepped into the street. They followed quickly on the heels of the constable. Life had so little of the spice of variety then and there, that even so trivial an affair created some stir and excitement. Also, the square had an amusing method of dealing out justice that made a trial conducted by him somewhat entertaining to those who were spectators. Nearly all the men of the town were there. The prisoner being arraigned at the bar of justice, the square turned to McMurdy and asked, How can you prove this collar to be yours? If the collar is mine, he replied, Mr. Spear, who is present, can testify. Mr. Spear, the Presbyterian minister, stepped forward. If the collar is McMurdy's, he said, I wrote his name on it, on the inner side of the ear. Hand it to me, said the squire, taking it from the constable and turning up the ear. Yes, here's the name. No better proof could be given, and my sentence is. 
If the court will excuse the interruption, began Dale, a mischievous twinkle in his eye, let me say that according to law, as... No, the court won't be interrupted, returned the squire, frowning him down. All laws were intended for the purpose of enforcing justice. I know what's right and what's wrong, as well as the man that made the laws, therefore stand in no need of laws to govern my actions. My sentence is that the prisoner be tied up forthwith to your buckeye and receive five lashes well laid on. It was done and the crowd dispersed. The trial had occupied scarcely five minutes, and everyone was satisfied except the culprit. Thank you for listening to another episode of Acre Salt Story Classic. Thank you.